It's, I'm not saying it's necessarily the easiest initial offense for France to do when I advise French players to attack Great Britain if they can. It's that the payoff is so huge if you succeed. The Diplomacy Dojo is a weekly discussion led by your board brother about diplomacy tactics and strategies. Let's listen in on what our players are discussing this week. my opinion or my experience playing, there's this little window in a France-England alliance where if France stabs England early enough, then France can be on the path to a solo win. It's around the time that, let's say, England has debilitated Germany or Russia, but they're not knocked out. Like Germany's got four centers, Russia maybe lost St. Petersburg, but is still viable, something like that. And if you, as the French player, you can you get your English ally to be a little greedy and get armies for maybe go, going deeper into the board. And so you haven't menaced Italy too much. You haven't gone after Italy. Germany's simply been debilitated. So just as England overextends, you backstab England and start attacking England. And when that happens, not only are the German and Russian players likely to be happy that this has happened, uh, but they're also not in a position to, nobody's in a position to do anything about it anymore. No one can can come in and bail England out, except maybe Italy. And uh, if you play that right, that can be a way to put you on a path to a solo win. It's not... um, it's more effective than it might seem, and uh, in my in my on my blog, I've called that a uh, a Trojan horse alliance, where you form an alliance with a player with the sole goal of getting them to open their defenses, and I think that can do pretty well for France in this situation. That you okay, I'm going to do something. I'm going to play consistent with the alliance with England, but I'm going to hold back just enough so that when the turn is right, I can just move from you know uh, Mid Atlantic Ocean to Irish Sea and a fleet from Western Mediterranean to Mid-Atlantic Ocean, you know, do that on the spring turn. Haha! And England has nothing that can cover Liverpool. So I'm going to convoy an army that was in uh, Gascony, you know, double convoy into Liverpool, and suddenly England's toast, right? That's a fatal blow when France does that double convoy and lands an army in Liverpool. That's uh, uh, maybe not fatal, but uh, life-threatening. It's definitely a life-threatening attack. And uh, moving into that position from what looked like a position that was going to fight Germany or Italy, you know, maybe you could pull it off. I'm not saying it's easy, just that uh, when I when I'm France and it seems like England wants to be my ally, I would try to figure out whether there's a way I can pull off the Trojan Horse Alliance and just attack England anyway. It's for that reason, my knowledge that that the French player has a big incentive to do this, that I am often reluctant <laughs> to to do very much on an England France alliance. I'm not saying I never play it. But I, it, it makes me nervous. I, I think the last time I recall playing the England-France alliance in a press game to a, to a big extent was some years ago. I played a high-level game, and the French player and I, we had a spark of interest. You know, It seemed like we, we mutually were interested in working together just from our play styles or what we were saying. We said some funny things. And uh, we agreed to work together to take down Germany as fast as possible. And because we both tricked Germany early on, we stopped Germany from getting any builds in 1901. Germany was just stuck at three. And we very quickly consolidated. Germany was, I mean, that's that's pretty rare for Germany to get zero builds in 1901 in a press game. And it required a pretty higher, a high amount of trickery. And uh, we got pretty far. Eventually, we ended up in a draw with Turkey because, uh, which is pretty common for an England-France alliance, which is uh, that the French player, of course, when it looked good, backstabbed me. 
But uh, because I was somewhat prepared or had been anticipated that that might coming, I, w- I was able to contain the backstab and we played it out to our three-way draw with Turkey. And that's the last time I remember playing the alliance with France in a press game, and early in a high-level press game. And uh, I did not win. <laughs> and uh, France was the player who, who, who stabbed me. Speaking very generally about this concept, I think that the a major breakthrough in going from a merely competent diplomacy player to an excellent diplomacy player is appreciating the strategic value of things aside from just counting supply centers. And this means thinking about not just, hey, supply centers are worth different things. Norway's worth very little to England, but worth a whole lot to Austria, you know, if you were able to get into Norway, that'd be incredible. And they're, they're worth different. The, the supply centers are worth different things to each power. And that there's a lot of value in positions that aren't centers at all necessarily, like Mid-Atlantic Ocean or North Atlantic Ocean or Galicia. Those are, those are, those are not supply centers, but controlling those provinces has immense value. Those, that's the basic stuff, but it goes even beyond that, which is there's value in strategic posture and that value is different for the different powers because of how their geography works. So to put it into something more, more concrete, something like what is the value of securing one of my flanks with a non-aggression pact or an alliance? How, do I, how can I reduce that to some kind of quantification? It's possible to do. For example, France and Italy often have a non-aggression pact in press diplomacy. They agree to a a large number of demilitarized zones, and they'll each concentrate on their own sphere of the map. This is not too different from how I described how uh, Germany and Austria can often begin the game by just agreeing not to bother each other. Italy and France can do the same. If they do this and they each send their units away from each other, well, the value there is equal to one supply center for every unit that is not needed to guard the border since a supply center grants you a unit. So if you are France and you have to leave a garrison of an army behind, let's say, or a fleet, let's say you have to leave a fleet in Spain or an army in Marseille, just in case Italy's bothering you, you know, that there's there's an Italian army in Piedmont and there's a French army in Marseille and they're both just menacing each other, you know, not, not accomplishing anything. Uh, whereas if they could agree to move away, if Italy could move that army in Piedmont somewhere else and Italy could move the army in Marseille somewhere else, they could do that. They would each have a new unit effectively, you know, a unit that wasn't doing anything is now doing something. So agreeing to this non-aggression pact is in effect of equal value to capturing a supply center, even though it, it doesn't involve actually making any captures because it frees up a unit, it frees up this resource. There are, there are many other instances of this, of where, hmm, what, what, is the, what, is this, what is the value of accomplishing something? And if you can somehow find a way to convert that value into how many units will it give me or how many units does it free up or something like that, that's a great way to estimate the value. And notice that I'm I'm really focusing on the units and not so much the supply centers per se, uh, because additional supply centers that don't result in your being able to put another unit to productive use is kind of treading water. Uh, I, I mean, I have to make an exception here. There are scoring systems and stuff that count your number of centers, and uh, I'm I'm personally you know not a fan. Uh, because it in- these scoring systems encourage players to just count centers instead of thinking strategically about the match. But 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 setting that aside, the hmm, what what am I saying? The analysis that you want to perform is 
uh, if I were to uh, if I were to make this choice or make this deal or move this way, what is going to be the net result to my number of units? Will I have more units available to do things or not? This analysis will help a player understand why something like fighting for Belgium can be a trap for France because the number of units needed to hold a line against Germany that incorporates Belgium is one more than the number of units that's needed to hold a line that doesn't incorporate Belgium. In other words, capturing Belgium increases your supply center count by one, but doesn't give you an additional unit to do anything with. I mean, assuming Germany is intact and staring you down, etc., but which is common. You have to use that unit that you gained to hold your gain in Belgium. So you're, you're not really better off tactically. You don't have more units that can be put to productive use. And so if uh, increasing your supply center count without actually increasing your, your fighting power can be um, counterproductive as your score appears to be going up, as it were, without you actually being better off. It could cause players to change sides or be intimidated by you. And so that's why wise French players are usually like, mm, you know, I'll take Belgium as an incidental route to accomplishing something out. But they're not just, they're, they're experienced players aren't doing things like going all out just to capture Belgium early on because it has so many strategic or political ramifications without actually giving you more fighting power. Whereas there are captures you can make or positions you can take, I should say, that not only do they give you... Um, another build, but actually the position is even more defensible than it was before, possibly freeing up other units to do other things. And this can be incredibly helpful. And that's when that's that's like situations where you get real, your power level can expand really quickly from having accomplished some small thing. Let me let me think of an example. Let's say that you are fighting I'll use France again as an example. Let's say you're, you're France and you have conquered Great Britain. You've taken out Great Britain and you made these captures there. Uh, and you used three, three units, let's say two fleets and an army, to go through and destroy, great, destroy England and capture all the home centers in Great Britain. You were able to successfully do that. Maybe you got some support from an ally or something. Well, now England's destroyed and your three units are there. Your three units that you used to, to, to conquer Great Britain are now located in Great Britain, but you also made three, you also got three builds. And you don't have to use all three of those builds, most likely, just to defend your gains in Great Britain. Maybe you will send one uh, to keep your forces beefed up, but you probably have two other units now that can do something other than just defend everything you gained in Great Britain. They could go do something else. You could attack Germany, you could attack Italy, or you could supercharge your forces uh, that went to Great Britain, maybe try to overpower the North. But at some point, there's a saturation level where like, okay, six units is really not gonna accomplish anything more than five would, so I should use this unit for something else. And that thinking this way could help illuminate why I advise things like, as France, focus on conquering Great Britain. Don't worry so much about Belgium, because Belgium doesn't really add a lot of value, even though it captures a center, whereas England capturing English centers are worth something like double, <laughs> because the, the you, not only do you make the capture, but you also free up a whole unit to do something else. All the units that you might have used to fight England can now fight somebody else, and you got those builds. Yeah, all, all things being equal, you know, I mean, I, I would still attack players I don't like over players that I do. <laughs> 
what we can take, we can go off on that on that tangent for a moment, uh, the England-Turkey alliance. It's also one of my favorite alliances. And the main reason is that it's almost impossible for the other players to perceive that England and Turkey are working together uh, because they're so far away. They're on opposite corners of the board. They rarely have an opportunity to support each other's moves. And even when they do, it's only one move here and there and doesn't really doesn't give away very much. And so England and Turkey can be working together and sharing information and timing their backstabs, you know, to, to attack a player at the same time. And all this stuff can be happening without other players really knowing about it. Someone, I think David Hood, another a diplomacy media personality, informed me that in a different metagame, maybe uh, the play-by-mail days or face-to-face metagame, I can't remember, not the online metagame that I'm used to that England and Turkey were called the Wicked Witches, the Wicked Witch of the West and the Wicked Witch of the East. And uh, they were thought to be the strong and dangerous powers. I thought that was very interesting to learn. So for us to really evaluate my opinion or my belief, I guess you could say, my belief that England's alliance with France is less likely to result in an English solo win than England's alliance with Germany. We would need data on controlling for matches where England allied Germany and England allied France. So when England allies Germany, what result? You know, how, how often does England win versus when England allies France, what result? How often does England win? There was, I've read many reports, people have made many reports that aggregate data on the various online diplomacy websites. And there even was some, there even been some of these reports on what happens in face-to-face tournament games. And they'll show information like, haha, this opening for Turkey is correlated with Turkey getting the win more often. Or, oh, uh, Italian solo wins are pretty rare, but Italian draws are pretty common. So we can infer this has something to do with the power or whatever. And I think I, I, get, I get pretty frustrated at those inferences. And I think this is because I have some, I have some background in statistics and science, not, not um, formal education, but it's, it, I had to learn a lot about that for different things that I've done in my life. And I realize, oh man, these are, these are totally, there are leaps in logic here. They're jumping to conclusions. You don't, you don't have, you're not controlling for things that are probably much strong, stronger indicators of this. And here's what I mean. Is this this opening that you say for Turkey is more likely to result is, is is correlated with solo wins? Is it also the opening that's correlated with good players? If because if good diplomacy players favor that Turkish opening, then all you've shown is a connection between diplomacy players being good and diplomacy players winning. That the idea that that we we don't have a like a, a proof that just because that opening is favored by the good players. That that, that that opening is what is causal in getting them to win. It could be other factors, and they just sort of superstitiously make that opening or something. We just don't know that. You can't know that from so little data. Uh, but like when I look at data and we say, hey, we have this data that shows uh, you know, these this solo wins are a little more common in this group, with in this website, with this alliance. Well, so what? Maybe the England-France alliance is favored by good English players for some other reason. You know that they that they uh, on their website and their metagame, uh, everybody everybody knows when England is going to backstab Germany, and so they they see it coming and they block it. But the French players are not experienced, and so that's why the strong players choose the the French alliance. They may choose it precisely because it's so counterintuitive, or because it's not very good, and that's why players underestimate it. 
or something like that. And so although this alliance is correlated with England getting more solo wins, the reason isn't that the alliance is tactically powerful. The reason is that the alliance is tactically not powerful, and that's why people underestimate it. If true, that there's a metagame that disfavors a Germany-England alliance, that would make sense that an England-France alliance is a little more common way for England to get on a path to a solo win, not because, again, not because the alliance is particularly inherently favorable to England getting a solo win, but because it's so hard for England to get an alliance with Germany in the first place that there's just not going to be a high number of England solo wins with a Germany alliance because the alliance, the alliance is just not that common. Let's start with the Germany-Austria alliance. I think that uh, that's been on my mind lately a little more, and it's let's just start there. So at the outset, the idea of a Germany-Austria alliance might be surprising to a person who's just looking at the diplomacy board and hasn't really played before. You know, it's, it's, it's not very intuitive because it looks like Germany and Austria are, are born uh, ready to attack each other. They, they share a common border. They are neighbors. They have a bunch of centers next to each other. But in practice, in practice, Germany and Austria are drawn away from each other towards other powers because of how the game works out in its, its spheres, as people sometimes put it. So if early in the game, Austria goes and attacks Germany, Austria usually just ends up getting crushed by Italy, Turkey, or Russia. And similarly, if Germany goes off and attacks Austria early on, Germany is just going to be attacked by France, England, and or Russia. So in order to even be able to fight, those powers usually have to get the, the surrounding area under control somehow. And so most of the time, the beginning of a diplomacy game begins with Germany and Austria having some kind of non-aggression agreement. Even in gunboat diplomacy, it goes without, literally it goes without saying that you're not going to attack each other early on. You've got other things to do. And uh, that's how the game usually plays out. So for an alliance to exist, that implies something a little more than just non-aggression, right? It's not just that the powers are not attacking each other. It's that the powers are working together somehow. And this is pretty interesting. Like, what does it mean for Germany and Austria to work together? Well, one thing is that Germany and Austria have a mutual neighbor who they could work together to attack, that neighbor being Russia. Each power may only have to commit a small number of units to make that attack work. If Russia spread out or has been lured in the wrong direction or whatever, maybe even two or three units between them Two or three armies could be enough to start bringing down Russia. Or alternatively, they might work together because uh, one of those powers does not want to see Russia destroy the other. Germany doesn't want to see Austria crushed by Russia or vice versa. That could cause those powers to start working together in, in concert somehow. One tries to bail the other out. In practice, though, working together against Russia can sometimes get pretty tense because both Germany and Austria are likely counting on Warsaw and or Moscow to reach 18 supply centers and win. So different players will have different interpretations about which of the two powers should get those centers and win, and, or they could destroy Russia and then immediately backstab each other over those centers, blah, 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 things like that. That's, that's something that's really important to hash out if you're really going to play alliance with Russia, uh, with Germany and Austria. If they're going to play an alliance out and attack Russia, they got to figure out how, how the partition of Russia is going to go. But most of the time, uh, in the beginning of the match, Germany and Austria are not really working together tactically. 
what they would be doing is sharing intelligence and having some kind of combined game plan. Uh, so that way, what what one power is doing positively affects the other and so on. In my personal experience, I think this alliance is very advantageous to either power. And uh, I almost always try to get this alliance going if I can. And the reason why I, I've had a good experience is that uh, Germany and Austria can be sharing information and helping each other in subtle ways and agreeing not to attack each other. They have this non-aggression and maybe potentially they'd be willing to bail each other out without other players really figuring out what's going on. That this can be going on from 1901 until like 1905 or 1907. They might not appreciate the, how closely Germany and Austria are working together because there's probably not that much giving it away. And most of the time, Germany and Austria aren't going to attack each other early on, whether they're working together or not. So that the, the, the board itself is not going to give this away. So for example, let's say uh, that Germany has an alliance going with France or an alliance going with England or an alliance going with Russia that's intended to be a short-term alliance. Eventually, Germany is going to have to betray and attack that ally in order to take over the whole northern side of the board. That's not going to be workable if that power is way too strong or if Austria or somebody comes in your back door. And so as Germany, what you're hoping is that around the time that you, Germany, are trying to consolidate power, maybe go from 12 to 14 supply centers, take over the north, something similar is happening with Austria, where Austria has inflict, inflicted significant damage on Turkey and or Italy and or Russia, but not finished them off so that both of you are continuing to expand uh, without endangering each other without one player getting such a runaway lead that they go for a solo. And then uh, the reverse position applies when you're Austria, you know, hey, I'm expanding, my German allies expanding. And this could go on quite a while. And you might not have to change sides to block somebody from getting a solo win until very late in the game. And I think this is pretty good. I think that's a pretty good alliance. And uh, then you'll cross over the stalemate line somewhere during late in the game if you go for the win and uh, betray that ally. And you don't have to fight them for one center or, or so. And uh, if you, your, your match doesn't end in a win, you don't have to destroy your ally. You can just share a draw with them, maybe a three-way draw or something like that. I actually have had the, um, the good fortune of one of the only two two-way draws I ever had in the 10 years I've been playing diplomacy. I was Austria and the other power was Germany. And uh, I, I went for a solo win and was stopped, and then we knocked everybody else out, and we had that 17-17 split. Uh, Richard Sharp wrote a, a book some decades ago, I think it's called The Game of Diplomacy, that was uh, very influential in its day, and he spoke very favorably about cooperation between Germany and Austria. I think the book even describes it as the most natural alliance in the game, or something like that, uh, which I don't agree with, with uh, such an assessment, uh, but it is a good alliance, and the Anschluss is the name of this alliance. It's kind of a strange thing that's a World War II reference referring to the Nazi takeover of Austria. I don't, <laughs> you know, it doesn't sound very good from the Austrian player's perspective to reference uh, that, that, that as if like Germany is taking over Austria. But the, the term I think in German itself means like union or unification or something like that. I'm not a German speaker, so I, I don't exactly know. Uh, but the idea is that this alliance, in this alliance, you can play Germany and Austria as one big power, as if they are one gigantic power, and that that's, this is possible to do uh, if you each expand away from each other. And I, I, I often begin press diplomacy games as either power by, uh, by saying to the other, you know, do you know the Anschluss strategy? Have you heard of it? Uh, if you have, I, I want you to know that I'm 
I'm in favor of it. I will, I will do this. If you, if you'll have me, I'll, I'll play as your ally that way. And that often gets a positive response, especially if they're familiar with the concept. If you, if you imagine the way the diplomacy map works, the way I do, which is that there's a northern sphere of England, France, and Germany, and a southern sphere of Italy, Austria, and Turkey, with Russia straddling the two sides of the board. If you think about the match that way, then um, it makes sense, I think, that you would expect to see Russia be allied with northern powers sometimes, like England or Germany, the way Russia sometimes allies with Austria or Turkey. Those, are, those alliances in the South are pretty common, Austria, Russia, or Russia, Turkey. But it's a lot rarer to see players do an England-Russia alliance, as we've talked about many times in the dojo before, or a Germany-Russia alliance. And I think that's just a oversight in how players think. And they just haven't experienced the need for that alliance with Russia or seen games where it plays out, something like that. Something, something's going on in their brains where they don't think about why it could be advantageous to work with Russia in the North, and so they don't do it. And that's a shame. I think that being able to talk your way into that alliance as Russia is a, is a major reason why Russia is considered a great, maybe even one of the slightly better powers in press diplomacy. And your utter inability to talk your way into anything in gunboat diplomacy is why Russia is hands down the worst power in gunboat diplomacy. Let's talk about... Uh, the Germany-Russia alliance, which I think is, I think is really different. I'll say this: I think it's an underrated alliance. I think there's a few too many players who rule it out as just not even being a viable alliance. And as my years of experience in diplomacy have gone on, I have come to think of the Germany-Russia alliance as stronger and stronger for Germany, maybe Russia as well, but definitely for Germany more and more. Uh, I'll explain what I what I mean. So a lot of players take it as a given that Germany needs to begin the match by moving the starting fleet to Denmark and then to Sweden to stop Russia from getting Sweden in 1901. And I think this is a, a short-sighted way of looking at things because there's a lot of stuff that can happen. There's a huge cascade of effects uh, from Russia getting off to a really bad start, especially a bad start in the north. And so these days, I usually, I default to allowing Russia to get into Sweden and would only stop Russia from doing so if I had a compelling reason. Maybe, for example, Russia got off to an explosive start elsewhere and I just don't want Russia to be too strong, or I feel good about alliance with England and that alliance is conditioned on my stopping Russia from getting into Sweden or something like that. There's a reason, okay, I'll stop Russia from taking Sweden. But otherwise, if all, all if the game's just playing out as they usually do in spring 1901, I probably let Russia in. And so uh, once that is once you've done that as Germany, and if it seems like Russia is a viable ally for whatever reason, you know, they, your personalities seem to go together, or the Russian player's strategic think, strategic thinking matches yours, then you've opened up a pathway to a really interesting alliance uh, because Russia can move into Scandinavia, fight, and then contain England and be this big threat to England, uh, allowing Germany to fight France and England simultaneously. And as long as France and England are not um, really tightly coordinated from the beginning, 
I think that the Germany-Russia alliance can slightly have the upper hand, like especially if you could attract Italy to intervening a little bit. Usually the English and French players, unless they have decided to play an England-France alliance from the get-go, have some units that really can't be brought to bear. Like France has some fleets that are not in position to really do anything, or England has an army that's been, been stranded or disbanded. And the reason why I think this is pretty good is that if, if Germany's succeeding and expanding and England's been debilitated or eliminated and France is down for the count, it's really easy for Germany to backstab Russia to get the remaining centers needed to win. Because rolling up Scandinavian St. Petersburg or zooming over to attack Warsaw with new builds, that's, that's not that hard to do because Russia's really weak on defense. Tactically speaking, Russia's defense is very poor, especially vis-a-vis -vis Germany. And so from my point of view, if France and England have really strong defense, and they, they do in my opinion, and, and Russia does not, then that makes it a strategic priority to take down France and England, who will be difficult to defeat late in the game, and leave Russia well enough alone because Russia will be easy to defeat. And once I started playing this way as Germany, I think I've done a lot better, actually. Uh, at working with Russia, even in gunboat games, I commonly work with Russia for quite a while. And this, is, this has been very successful for me. And so since, uh, since I've been on a string of successes working with Russia, sometimes in a very close alliance, but sometimes just, you know, just a friendly, friendly neutrality, because that's been working out for me over and over, it's starting to become a, a brotherboard playbook option. Okay, as Germany, ally Russia if you can. And uh, that's pretty different uh, from how most players seem to think. And speaking with other experienced diplomacy players, I find that they also think this. They also think, yes, yes, the alliance with Russia, underrated for Germany, uh, worth looking into. Some experienced players even say, oh, I pretty much automatically let Russia into Sweden just to try to just to try to give England something to do and to curry favor. Wow, you know, it's a very different way of looking at at things than than some players. From the Russian perspective, it might sound kind of alarming since I just said what was great about the alliance for Germany is that you get this late game backstab. But for Russia, the alliance is very good as well, in my opinion, because in the north, if Germany is tolerating Russia's Russian control of both Sweden and Norway, and Russia is able to allocate some units to go on offense, either because Germany's, Germany has extended a lot of units to fight France and or England, and Russia feels kind of safe, and Russia is not getting crushed by, by an Austria-Turkey alliance, whatever reason, it looks good, Russia can commit some forces to fighting in the north, then um, Russia could invade Great Britain. Edinburgh or Liverpool are viable captures for Russia. If Russia can get a fleet in Norwegian Sea and maybe even convoy an army onto Great Britain, woo, that puts Russia in position to gain some very distant centers that Russia doesn't normally get. And uh, to get a lot of captures in the in late game when Russia may be thinking about going for a solo win, to be in such a position where, okay, I'm going to backstab Germany and I'm going to go for a win, to, to attack from the north that way that, oh, England's been, been knocked out. I have some of those centers. And you can do a pincer thing where you attack Germany uh, from, from, the, from the east and then from the north and go for the win. That's a, that opens up a lot of options. That opens up a lot of options, different paths to a solo win that Russia normally kind of struggles with since, in my opinion or in my experience, controlling the entire south is unrealistic for Russia. And Russia, even controlling most of the south, is sometimes unrealistic. So Russia needs to make significant gains in the north. And if the alliance with Germany holds for a while, that can put Russia having some units way out west in the north. And making us this makes a solo win a lot more possible because now, okay, I don't necessarily have to have Greece 
or something in order to win a, a center that Russia might struggle to get in the South. And then on top of that, I think that the alliance with Germany affords Russia the ability to build multiple northern fleets without offending a major ally. So normally when you're playing a, a successful game as Russia, Whichever players are cooperating with you in the south, whether that's Austria, Turkey, or, or even Italy, those powers are usually pressuring you to build some kind of fleet presence in the north because they know that those fleets can't hurt them, and they want you to do something with your builds, and so, okay, hey, do something, I got an idea, build fleets in the north, and uh, they'll, they'll pressure you to do that, and most of the northern powers will be offended uh, every time, <laughs> every time you build a fleet in the north, because um, that th they know that there's the centers they need, that England, France, and sometimes Germany, the, the centers that they need, uh, you're going to be occupying them. But if your alliance is with Germany and you build, okay, build a second fleet in the north, now a third fleet, these fleets are for fighting England, is what you'll say, and they could be for that. Whereas if you keep building armies in the north, that gets kind of awkward. Like, what are these armies going to do? They're not for fighting. They're not for fighting England. Uh, what's up with that? And so, by being a by, by being allied to Germany, it makes it possible for you to please a lot of powers. England won't like it, but pretty much everybody else will. Uh, that you're building these fleets, and if Russia can get a critical mass of fleets in the north, like let's say four or five, somehow you pull that off. It's rare. I've only done it maybe once or twice in my career reach this critical mass of fleets, Russia can run wild and roll up almost the entire north. Just roll roll over everything because if once you have enough fleets in the north, uh, you can just capture these huge number of centers. Yeah, the fleets won't help you take Munich or Paris, but you can get a Russian player who's got all of Great Britain, who's got like Holland and stuff. Uh, maybe even Brest is not completely out of the question. And that uh, that gets real interesting. It opens up a lot of opportunities uh, to force a win that Russia might uh, might not otherwise be able to do. So because of this, this, this open-ended oppor strategic opportunity for Russia to be viable in the North, I think it's worth making that deal with Germany, even though, you know, it's maybe not an alliance that will last until the very end of the game. It probably won't. It's not that kind of alliance, but it could go very far. And so I think that that's a reason why alliance with Germany can can be effective for Russia. In a game where Russia does poorly, it's usually because Russia is being attacked by more than one power on different areas of the map, and so Russia can't organize a good tactical defense. It's just too hard. The fleets don't really help with defense, and Russia's overextended and gets destroyed pretty fast. In the game where Russia does well, uh, usually it's that Russia has made gains in the south and then overbuilt units in the north, or made a bunch of gains in the north and then overbuilt units in the south. And I'll explain what I mean by overbuilt. So Russia's three... Three of Russia's home centers are in the south, as I usually define it, Warsaw, Moscow, and Sevastopol, and one of Russia's centers is in the north, St. Petersburg. And so any gains Russia makes in the south, like let's say Romania or Budapest or, or some Turkish home centers, those are, those are southern gains. Any gains Russia makes in the north, like Berlin or Sweden, those are northern gains. What I experience when I see Russia doing really well, it's something like Russia makes three captures in the south but doesn't build three units to fight in the south. Russia builds one or two and sends overbuilds in the north. So Russia maybe has two centers in the north, but has four units fighting in the north. That's what I mean by overbuilds, that the number of units on one sphere of the board exceeds the number of centers that Russia has. And that's only possible if one of Russia's flanks is somehow secured by alliance or, or something, which is usually in press diplomacy, it's going to be your diplomacy. So even though I only have two units in the north, 
uh, I'm able to have three or four supply centers because England's my ally. And that allows me to have way more armies in the South than would normally be possible with just the units that I have. And so I can start breaking through the other players' defenses and vice versa. And because an alliance with England affords Russia one of these opportunities, hey, I've got three or four centers in the, in the North, but only have to leave two or three units behind, maybe even fewer, being able to overbuild units in the South gives Russia a, a, a shot in the arm. You know, whoa, some steroids kicking in. Uh, you've got more, more armies are in the South than would normally be possible. And so you're outflanking all the other players in ways that you don't usually see. In my experience, that has happened on one side of the map or the other where Russia does well and where Russia wins. It's usually that that has happened twice. At one point, Russia was overbuilt in the South and at another point, Russia was overbuilt in the North or vice versa. I mean, it could be in either order is what I'm saying. This episode was made possible by the generous support of people like you. For more information, visit patreon.com slash brotherboard. You can learn more from your board brother at brotherboard.com. If you enjoyed this episode, remember to subscribe, share, and review. Thanks to Loyalty Freak Music for the theme music, It Feels Good to Be Alive too.